Starting the studio was a little bit like getting into a boat full of holes. And the first year we spent a lot of time just figuring out how to plug the holes, aka like figure out how to run a profitable business, how to pay ourselves, health insurance, do client work that clients were excited about, like all those things that... Uh, those little gaps of knowledge that we didn't have prior to starting the studio. And then once we plugged all the holes, it was kind of like, ah, shit, we're in a boat. <laughs> Where are we going? You are listening to One More Question, a podcast by Nicework, a branding and service design company. One of the things we do best is asking our clients the right questions. This podcast came about because we wanted to share some of the best answers that we've heard over the last 12 years. We talked to significant creators, experts, and communicators who we've encountered. And we share the useful insights, inspirations, and facts that made us stop and take notes as we go about our work. I'm your host, Ross Drakes. Hello and welcome. Today I'm talking with Carly Ayers, who is a writer and creative director based out of New York. Until recently, she was a partner and co-founder at Horath an interactive design and technology design studio. I met Carly when we founded the Creative Mornings chapter in Johannesburg. She was the community manager at um, Creative Mornings in New York. And since then, she moved on to found Horath, as I mentioned. So today we chat a little bit about how she built this or created this company, how they grew really, really fast in three years and how they got to the point of deciding to actually shut it down. Uh, apart from that, we chat about how inclusivity and bringing everyone into a design process can actually lead to a better result at the end. Enjoy. Hello, Carly, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Um, we were just talking about your company, or is it is it still your company, or have you officially closed um, Horath? I believe we have uh, T minus two weeks left. We are officially shuttering at the end of March. Although we have a few projects we're still wrapping up that might take us into early April a little bit. So, so you've you know you started this business. I think it was three years ago. now? It is, yeah. It's a a short period of time, but certainly a a dense period of time in a lot of ways. Well, I mean, you've you've you know kind of witnessing it uh, from the social media sharing. Uh, it seems to have taken off uh, at a rapid a rapid <laughs> pace. You start you started in it was the new museum um, three yeah. years ago, and now you've being on your own. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about ORAF and, and what you guys did and, and how you've ended up in this place? Of course. Yeah. And it's it's uh, funny you describe it that way because one of our partners, Pedro, actually uh, always considered the studio to be like a rocket ship. He always really liked the rocket <laughs> metaphor. In a lot of ways, it, 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 yeah, it felt like that. It felt like from the start, it was, uh, we were fortunate there was definitely a period of a few months where we uh, worked out of each other's apartments, um, but I think, uh, and on couches, and I have a lot of photos of just stacks and stacks of pizza boxes that used to occupy my living room. Uh, so that was not a, a sustainable working environment, and we were fortunate <laughs> in uh, uh, New Ink, which is, yeah, the New Museum's incubator program for arts and technology startups. Uh, we were there for like our first year, uh, and then we moved out and got our own space in Bushwick after that. But yeah, it's uh, burned bright, burned out. 
but from the start, we did a lot of different things. I mean, it probably looked like a very large, explosive start from the outside. Uh, and I think that was one of the things. It's always hard to balance that. Uh, we were so committed to being transparent. We really wanted people to know what it was like to be starting a studio from the inside. But uh, even to the end, I think there's things like those couch moments and... Uh, I don't know. Our first project was a dental startup and we did a little bit of everything for them and we had no idea how to do it. And some of that stuff uh, you're not able to be as external facing with as you'd like. So uh, in the ending of this, uh, because, oh, go ahead. There's because uh, you, you don't necessarily want your clients to know that you've taken on the stuff and you have no idea how to actually do it, but you will figure it out because... Uh, often this kind of work is is quite messy, but you you get there in the end. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, the new with New Ink, we applied uh, with a certain level, perhaps of like naivete, but very ambitiously under the guise of saying that we were going to create like this new kind of design studio. We had all met working together at Google's Creative Lab, and uh, at New Ink, we said we were going to like rethink what it was like to run a design studio. And we were super frustrated that there were a lot of studios out there, but no one was really transparent about what went into like how you started a studio or even how much money you make or what does the design process look like? And so that was something we really wanted to demystify in in the way we ran Hallraff and we really wanted to share a lot of that stuff. Um, and that was why we ended up- I, I understand you published your, your full financials on the internet and what you guys earned and all of that. Yeah, that was terrifying. <laughs> did, did it? Were there any kind of like negative uh, kickbacks to that, or, or was um, it? <laughs> there's been more positive than negative. I was actually I was at a dinner last night, guys, and uh, it was with uh, this couple that runs a design studio. And they were like, "Yeah, someone came up to me. They were like, did you see what Carly charges just to show up?'" Because uh, I have this <laughs> in there, and it's like I, I was just like asked. It was like pricing, like kind of like what seems like reasonable pricing based on conversations we had had, and kind of like the benchmarks that we try to charge. Which, of course, we don't always charge that. I mean, we did websites for like fifteen hundred bucks, and we did websites for two hundred and fifty thousand uh, bucks. But the the price tag for showing up, I was like, was like two thousand. It was like. Uh, an ambitious day rate, but like that's what it costs to like show up and like I don't know, lead a worksheet shop or be on a panel. So there's some kind of people like you charge what? And you're like, uh, well, sometimes we try to charge that. I can't say that we always did. Isn't it fascinating that we kind of live in this industry and you know some so many people don't know what to charge and they they often end up undercharging. I, I think to the detriment of the client and the industry because people get used to paying for work at a rate that's just not sustainable, um, which forces designers to take shortcuts and, and kind of end up trying to deliver on these prices. But then when somebody does actually put out their rate into the world and it's seen as high, there's almost this kickback like, wow, that's a lot of money. Aren't you being sort of greedy? Do you think there's yeah. an element of, of almost jealousy? it's it's true but i mean again then the follow-up to that was this couple was like oh we were recently asked to be in a photo shoot 
uh, and we were going to get like compensated in terms of like product that we were advertising. And instead, it gave us the confidence to ask for more money and we got more money. And I was like, cool. So for every like one of those, I'm like, if it, there's a few of those stories, I feel like it was worth it. But uh, the, there's certainly a lot of backlash. I think, I don't know if this is design specific. I certainly doesn't, I don't see this as much in other industries, but there's, am I allowed to cuss on this? You are indeed. But there's a lot of like, just <laughs> in design. And I think it's like, you put yourself out there and you like share something and I mean, if you went through that drive folder, you'll see there's disclaimer after disclaimer after disclaimer. But I think there's something about putting something out there and like standing up for it or standing behind it that uh, leaves you a little vulnerable to the hungry masses ready to take you down. And did you have any, you know, did you have any feedback from your clients? How did they feel about this idea of people knowing what? they were paying for their websites and what their budgets were uh, was did anyone freak out and, and and react badly to it um for the most part a lot of the information is like somewhat uh anonymized so there's like a grid or like a spreadsheet where it's like for example we worked with a large technology company which if you know our work we work with a lot of different large technology companies you can probably try to guess which one it is you could probably narrow it down to like two or three and then like based on the work try to like assign it um but yes. it certainly involves uh, a little bit of detecting sleuth work so we were fortunate that um no one so far has reached out. We have like a, a current client that we're working with that we're wrapping up some stuff for who wasn't particularly psyched about it. Uh, <laughs> so but they're still working with you. They're still working with us. They still like us. We we apologized. And uh, uh, just because of the nature of it all, it's you're like, you, uh, yeah. And the fact that they're a current client, they're like, oh, gosh, like, I really wish you would have waited until after this was all over. And unfortunately, the timing could not be uh, helped. So, but they still like us. So, and we'll we'll make it right with them. I like that. So, so you were, before I took you on this 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 transparency segue, you were kind of talking about how you reached the point of of um, actually deciding to close the studio down. Yeah, the point of no return. Uh, I was saying, yeah, my partner, so Haraf has four partners. It's myself, Andrew, Pedro, and Nikki. And in a lot of these conversations, Andrew has been using the metaphor, which uh, I heard for the first time yesterday, and I really like, of just like this boat that's full of holes. And starting a studio was a little bit like getting into a boat full of holes. And the first year, we spent a lot of time just figuring out how to plug the holes, aka like figure out how to run uh, a profitable business, how to pay ourselves, health insurance, do client work that clients were excited about, like all those things that uh, those little gaps of knowledge that we didn't have prior to starting the studio. And then once we plugged all the holes, it was kind of like, ah, oh, shit, we're in a boat. Where are we going? Uh, <laughs> and, uh, we looked up, we finished uh, bucketing out all the water that had quickly filled our sinking ship. And uh, we realized that we all didn't want to go in the same direction, and we promptly decided to get out of the boat. I think that's quite a bold move. I, I, I think a lot of companies and business owners sort of start quite clearly, and they have quite a clear 
reason for beginning the journey and then they look up and it's 20 years later and they're not sure how they got to where they are and if they're happy and if it's something they ever even wanted so i think it's very interesting that you you had the the self-awareness and and the foresight to a certain degree to have those difficult conversations with each other and actually reach this point um was it completely mutual that everyone everyone wanted to shut the studio down or did was one of the the partners kind of desperate to hold on to the the, the Horaf brand. They definitely took me kicking and screaming through uh, a few different rounds. Uh, it it wasn't entire. I mean, it was mostly mutual by the end of it all. Uh, but in the yes. beginning, it was definitely uh, Andrew had approached me, uh, and uh, I received like the you know like the we need to talk text. I got like a we need to yes. talk text, like the breakup text. And I was like, ah, oh, shit. Uh, but we got coffee and we chatted about it. And he has his own artistic practice outside of the studio and had been thinking he was the first one to look up and see what direction the boat was going in. And then uh, we had a few conversations in the studio. And uh, Pedro, uh, he his family's based in Brazil and he really likes to spend a lot of time with them and hopes to spend more time with them in the future. And remote work, we tried it a few different ways and wasn't super successful. So he saw a point of friction there. Nikki was a voice that he might be interested in going to grad school. And so we each had uh, a few different directions we were interested in exploring that we knew inevitably uh, couldn't really do all together. Uh, I don't really know what I wanted to do next. So I wanted to keep running the studio for the time being. But uh, that ended up, we had like three conversations of that where it was like, all right, it's definitely cleaner to shut this down than try to figure out how to slice up a somewhat successful design studio among four uh, twenty somethings. And I suppose then there's all the conversations about how much is it worth and are people being paid out? And Like, I mean, we don't, the especially for a new, a relatively new small design studio with no sort of i mean the values the people at the end of the day and it's the relationships that we have and uh, the skill sets that we each have and you could probably try to replace any one of us and the studio would continue to hobble along somewhat successfully but when you have like three people leaving a studio it's all of a sudden it's an entirely different studio and rather than continue trying to figure out what that looks like you might as well start a new studio you can have one of those executive producers credits from the producers of Horef comes <laughs> a new design studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> previously co-founder of Horef, <laughs> design studio you've never heard of. So, so your uh, what I really enjoyed, you know, sort of when you guys put out your projects and and when you sort of wrote about them or talked about them, there was always a lot of thought and care in how you were going about the project was almost as important as what the output was. Um, you know, and you know, the one project that springs to mind is your, your 24 hour kind of brief thing, your uh, part project, part um, torture cage that you invented for yourselves. Um, can you, can you talk a little bit about how you, um, how you approached projects and why it was so important, why the kind of exploring the process part of it was so important to you and and, and your partners at ORF. Totally. Yeah, that 26-hour project uh, came out of 
basically that concept I mentioned earlier around wanting to try to do things a little bit differently and wanting to demystify what it's like to actually start a design studio. Uh, And we had a few other projects uh, under that umbrella, none of which, not many of them launched, which I think was also kind of one of our, uh, we wish we would have gotten more of that stuff out there. But the final release of all the public documents uh, was our hope to make good on that promise of trying to share more of that. But for 26 hours, yeah, we made something for every letter of the alphabet. We had a dictionary generator and you would click a letter and it would give you a word and then we'd make something in response to that word uh, over and over and over again in hopes that Uh, we would learn more about what it was like to work together and to develop a creative process and to execute under uh, a very restricted timeline and uh, basically just like adding all the constraints of what a a normal client project would be sans client and trying to just reproduce that over and over and over again. Um, And sorry, your question was like why we did that? Yeah, so I'm, I'm very interested into in why you uh, are kind of you're almost reflecting on your process, or it felt like you were reflecting on your process the whole time, and that was quite important in the overall vision of the studio. Is is not just kind of creating work. It was very important to understand how you were creating it and why you know and why you were creating and, and kind of reflecting back on that. But perhaps we were a little bit too existential as well, which uh, was something that a friend brought up. They're like, you know, running a design studio is hard, but it doesn't need to be that hard. Uh, And I think we were really hard (laughs) on ourselves in terms of really, yeah, we really wanted to know how we created work, but we wanted to know why we created work and why did we create work this way versus that way. And uh, we tried to do projects that would help us better understand that and that we could share it so that other people could understand it too. Um, when at the end of the day, you're kind of like, all right, well, you do need to make money. So it'd be good to just figure out how to make the work on time and on budget and share that, which <laughs> you do that a lot of the time as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of our approach was figuring out uh, how to use, how to bring everyone to the table was really important to us when it came to brainstorming. My background, as you know, is a bit more of a writer and a wordsmith character Nikki's a developer, and then Andrew and Pedro are both designers. So how can you have a brainstorm session with people of four varying skill sets and interests and come up with an idea that really feels like it's from the group uh, and then create like a process where everyone feels involved and feels like their voice is heard throughout, uh, most importantly, the client's voice, because in client services, we know that's uh, very important as well. Yes. What do you what do you think makes for a, a good kind of brainstorming process? What do you think the elements of it are? Um, I think it helps to have ground rules. I think this is true uh, whether when you're designing any type of space where people of different backgrounds and perspectives come together. I think about that a lot in terms of uh, I run like a Slack group community online. I think about it in terms of the conferences I attend. Like how do you create a space where everyone feels safe and feels like they can be heard and feels like uh, they can provide value in, in the way that they do. And that was even true with like the four of us who share pretty similar backgrounds and experiences. But the thing like Pedro might want to articulate something in a different way, or he's more of a drawer. 
and making sure you have the right tools and the right constraints around that setting that everyone feels comfortable sharing their ideas. Um, so having like a time constraint, having markers is obviously a very tangible uh, version of that. Uh, agreeing that there are no bad ideas, but nothing is precious and to not take anything personally. Uh, I feel like setting those standards is really important. Uh, and then beyond that, one of the things we realized really early on was uh, I would set a brainstorm up for Monday and then we'd have the client review on Friday. Uh, and then after we'd have the brainstorm, we'd think that was enough time to put together a deck and the idea but we wouldn't always have a good idea on Monday. And so making sure yeah. we came back and like set up maybe several brainstorm sessions over the course of several weeks so that uh, we can brainstorm and then I can go take a shower or go for a run or read a book and then come back uh, with fresh eyes and bring a little bit more value to that conversation. Isn't this, I suppose, the ultimate challenge in, in this world that we live in that that process is so important, you know, it, it leads to kind of repeatability and dependability, which are, are quite important, but it is also kind of a slightly messy, slightly intangible thing that we are wrestling with. And it might work nine times, but the 10th time it actually all breaks down. And how do you, how do you design a system, a, a briefing system or a process that kind of captures a bit of that uh, kind of, flux that can happen um and i think what's what's more important than that is also letting clients know that this is not necessarily a linear process that you're not going to go from a to b to c to d to e to f uh, and you know and i suppose with that comes a level of faith on their side that we might go from a to d to f to mm -hmm. g back to a again and but we will eventually get to to where we need to be um, and even if we don't, we'll convince you that we are there because that's what we do for a living. Yeah, no, um, uh, 110%. I couldn't agree with that more. Yeah, and there's so much trust that goes into it. And trust is something that you have to create and you have to build and you have to invest in. And how can you set up a relationship with a client where they trust you to do that stuff? Also, I feel like very frequently, I mean, as is always one of the many challenges of uh, running a small design shop or any type of client services business is there frequently it's like, mm, yeah, but like, what if we skip that whole research kickoff phase and we just yes. really just need a logo? Can you just do a logo part? And you're like, oh, uh, I can, but uh, it's not going to be very good and everything's going to fall apart. It's, I mean, it's it's a challenge that we face because, you know, we, we uh, you know, at Nicework, we're very immersive and we think it's, it's it's one of the reasons that the work we do resonates so well with people. Um, but it is always the challenge, you know, you, you've kind of mailed it there that, that, that people who come from the outside of the world that we live in don't necessarily see the importance in really understanding um, what you know, what, what's going on and what the real truth behind it is. And they're quite happy to shoot from the hip. Um, but I, I think for me, one of the things is realizing that if you know that that's what, what's important to you, it, it becomes a filter for the kind of clients you'll work with. So if they don't want to do that work, then, you know, we've become quite comfortable with just saying to them, okay, well then we're not actually the studio for you. 
and here's a referral to five other people who will happily just design your logo. But it is hard to leave um, money behind on the table like that. It is, but yeah, I mean, and you're right. And there's so many design studios out there and there's so many people out there making really great work that I have, yeah, no qualms about recommending some one of them if uh, we don't end up being the right fit for a client. Uh, and I think the, that 26-hour A to Z project was uh, not intentionally, but uh, very unintentionally a good litmus test for the type of work we ended up getting that first year. Uh, because people who liked it got it. Same with our website, which uh, if you've been on is you can like doodle on it and you can play tic-tac-toe with a bot and it has all these like uh, esoteric references and it's it's a little strange to use but both those things were uh, a very effective filter for weeding out clients that perhaps weren't the best fit which wasn't super ideal in that first year when we weren't making an incredible amount of money but as we eventually reached a point where we had a steady flow of clients and projects it, it made it a lot easier to say no to some of those things that weren't as good a fit and do you think, um, you know, sort of by saying no and by putting more of the work out that you want to do, you started to attract more of the kind of clients that saw this stuff and were like, oh, that's something that I would like, that, you know, I'd like to get these people to do this kind of work for me. Um, did, did you see that? Uh, yes and no. I would say right about the time where we made the decision to shut down the studio was kind of when our first, well, Maybe earlier last, mid last year was probably when we first saw uh, a client approach us based on work that we had done. Um, for the first year and a half, two years, uh, everything was either uh, direct outreach or word of mouth. Um, we would sometimes get the occasional like agency reaching out who wants to do a website you can draw on because they liked our website that you can draw on, but they don't really have any budget and et cetera and so forth that didn't work out. We're asking us to like replicate a project we've done previously, but uh, the project we did for Entire World, the Los Angeles-based uh, fashion brand run by Scott Sternberg was the first project where he had been following our work for a while. And he stumbled on a few different websites, really liked the approach and the consideration to detail and interactions. Uh, and that's why he decided to reach out to us to do the website for his brand. But I think he was the first one who did. But you still managed to survive for all these years. Um, I, I'd, be, I'd be interested to know what your take, what do you think a good brief is? Like how, you know, how, how do you go about getting a good brief from people? Yeah. My favorite question, I love to ask people, like, what is the worst case scenario? What is the worst? What is your deepest, darkest fear for this project? As well as like, uh, if we are not the first studio or partner that they're reaching out to, like, what didn't work out with your last partner? Sometimes yeah. you'll ask that question. I'll be like, oh, yeah, well, the other three design studios we worked with were idiots. And you're like, Okay. <laughs> this there's a few red flags there. But yeah, I mean I love starting out with like what could go wrong, what's the worst case scenario? Because then at least you're starting from a place where you can start to like work backwards and be like, okay, how do we avoid that? Um and I think the day there's hmm, what makes a good brief? 
A good brief obviously understands timeline, budget, and deliverables, but also I, I think it like hits upon expectations. Like, what do you expect? Because uh, oftentimes you get a brief and it's like, we want uh, a website. Uh, and then you start talking to this potential client or this individual, and you find out that actually they've been having a, a lot of trouble with their sales and they haven't quite figured out why, and they're hoping that a website's the right solution. But maybe if you look at their current website, you could figure out like, oh, like your SEO is trash or uh, the checkout button's broken, or maybe there's any number of reasons why you're not getting the sales you should get. Or maybe you need a rebrand. Like maybe yeah. the answer, the problem you have, uh, you've put together what you think is uh, as the client you perceive to be the solution, but it's not always the solution. It might not be the right solution for your budget or for your timeline. So um I guess the right brief is really a conversation or a question or a problem. Um, and then I, I like that idea of a question or a problem because I think that's, I think one of the things we always expect clients to do is to write a good brief, but they don't come from our world. So they don't know how to articulate, you know, the, the right things to us. And, and I love that idea of, of a problem or a, you know, like a, or a challenge or something. Cause you know, everyone can say like, what's, what's wrong? Like, what are you trying to fix here? That's language that anybody can use, but kind of talking about kind of constraints of the web and, and things like that are not necessarily language that people are, are actually, you know, able to, to articulate well. Um, so, so I do like that idea of having a conversation, framing it around sort of sort of a problem or, you know, kind of creating that case. And then, then you can build a solution or an answer to it quite easily. Yeah. And you're right. Like a brief is such, I mean, and similar to brands, the term brand strategy or proposal or scope of work. Like there's, I feel like there's a lot of terms for a lot of these things and there's ways that there's uh, like tangible examples of what I perceive them to be, but uh, very frequently we'll get into a deliverable conversation and I'll be like, okay, so what do you think a brand strategy is? Uh, and the answer is very different than perhaps what I understood a brand strategy to be. Um, so anything that helps you uh, eventually get to a place of clarity and alignment around that is helpful. So, so tell me, you know, a lot of the stuff you say is, you know, you always talk about interaction and designing interaction, um, you know, and you believe, well, I think I'm quoting you here that you believe everything can be interactive. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. And that, that was, uh, definitely the premise I'd say of the type of work we wanted to make leaving Google. We talked about that a lot in the creative lab, um, and that, uh, ethos was something we used a lot in the projects that we did there. Like, how do you get someone <clears throat> to understand that AI is really smart, but it's also playful. And the best way to do that is to get someone to play with it themselves and to get someone to interact with something. Uh, we're big believers in learning by doing. And so if you can get you're trying to communicate something, the best way is to get someone to want to be a part of that conversation, so to speak, uh, versus, I don't know, interrupting their Twitter conversations or using the word bay in your newsletter e-blast, like instead of trying <laughs> to like, shove your message down someone's throat, uh, if you could 
engage them in a way that is playful and fun and get someone to interact, chances are they're going to care a lot more about what you're trying to say and they're going to understand it. Um, so that, that was the approach we used in most of our work, which we did a lot of different types of work. Uh, we described ourselves as medium agnostic, but we did everything from subway ad campaigns or billboard advertisements to websites you could call from your phone and identity systems that react to sound. So what that looked like in terms of each of those executions was fairly different. But I mean, how do you how do you make something like a billboard interactive? Um, what do you you know, like what is interactive in a billboard world be? Apart from putting some social media icons on the billboard and expecting people to stop their car. And, yeah, put the, and, the URL, the HTTP, yes. and uh, get yeah. someone to try to take a photo of that from their car on the interstate. Um, just kidding. Don't do that. Super dangerous. But <laughs> approach that was, uh, this was also for that dental startup we worked with uh, at the beginning of the studio. And I think up until last year, we still were doing a few different projects with them. Um, but they wanted to introduce, their name is Lydian Dental. They're absolutely wonderful. And they wanted to introduce their new clinics to the cities they were opening up in. So we came up with this idea of uh, these smiles that would be, they were kind of like, they're illustrated and they're very branded. And putting these smiles on uh, bus, the sides of buses and on posters and in flyers and just kind of making it a thing that if you are a resident of one of these cities, you're going to start noticing this pattern. You're going to start noticing these smiles. And it culminated with a giant smile on a billboard. Uh, so when you're driving down the interstate, you're like, oh, there's just a giant, it's smiling at me. So it was more interactive in the sense that you were asking someone to connect the dots and to see it in a few different places and to figure out that it was related to this new dental startup that was opening up in the city. We also did a series of mirrored posters for them that had the smiles on them that you could walk up to and you could take a selfie in and you could kind of put a little smile on your selfie. So those were pretty interactive as well. So, so I like that your kind of the idea of interactive doesn't necessarily mean um, something that you can physically play with. That it it can be sort of intangible interaction and tangible interaction all all mixed together in in one bigger kind of idea, one bigger campaign. Absolutely. What yeah, do you think? About... Oh, go ahead. Uh, what do you think the most sort of successful interaction that you guys designed? Mm-hmm at Toref was? Most successful? That's a good question. Hmm. It's hard to say. Um, I guess successful in terms of if someone played around with it, if someone cared about it. I suppose you could also define it a little bit around impact, like which one do you think had the most kind of impact on people and touch the most people? Personally, I feel like those projects like A to Z, uh, the 26-hour one, and the release of all our public documents at the end of the studio, those two are the two projects where I feel like we received so much outpouring of messages and people who let us know that it affected them on like a one-to-one ratio, like very like personal notes and messages of 
I, I'm like sitting at my laptop right now and my phone just lit up and an email just came in right now that's like uh, saying, wanted to send you a quick message and thank you so much for the Google Drive. Uh, it's super helpful as a new freelancer embarking on this brave new journey. So there's that, those are the things that feel um, most impactful. I was talking to someone, I was talking to a journalist yesterday and she asked me, she's like, what's your legacy? What do you think Haref's legacy is? And I was like, oh, like I, great question. But I think it's so hard to say what truly had an impact while you're still kicking and you're still around. I feel like it's going to take years to be able to look back and be like, oh, yeah, like, remember that e-commerce website we did? That really like set the ball in motion for that other design studio who started doing working with sound as the as part of the shopping experience or led to like X, Y, and Z. So. It's hard to say what the impact of anything is, but uh, I do feel like sharing a lot of our public documents was uh, hopefully impactful for a wide array of individuals who are trying to figure this stuff out themselves. I like that. Um, one of the things that I also appreciate about your, your, your work is that a lot of the, the work you put in was to almost design yourself out of the process. So you were kind of building tools for clients so that by the time you were done, they didn't necessarily need to contact you to to make more graphics or kind of build more more things. Was that a deliberate decision or did it just kind of come out of the process? It was, well, yes and no. I mean, the goal was uh, ideally to set the client up to be successful, uh, which at the end of the day is, I'm sure there are many studios who, uh, like to keep those strings attached and like to figure out like, okay, how do we turn this into a retainer relationship? Now that we've designed the identity system, like why don't you keep us on retainer to keep uh, creating assets and maintaining that for months and years to come. And I, I don't know that that's uh, a malicious thing as much as it's like a practical thing. I think yes. design is a difficult thing and it's, uh, for the most part, a lot of the clients we worked with don't have an in-house design team. And so it's difficult for them to create those assets on their own. And so for the projects we did, and, and quite frequently we were working with people who did not have in-house design teams. Maybe they were a startup founder or they run their own shop or they're just busy individuals like all of us. Uh, so it seemed most effective to also give them the tools to be able to maintain any systems we designed for them because there's really no benefit to, uh, at the end of the day, keep us on the line to keep designing out various logos and brochures. I'd say like a good example of that was uh, the sound reactive identity system we did for the Brooklyn Symphony Orchestra, where uh, here you have this wonderful volunteer orchestra of lawyers and teachers and there's a few designers in there but at the end of the day it, giving them the tool gave them the ability to make their own assets and design out their own tote bags and t-shirts and tickets and posters and website assets so that they can keep using that system into the future which isn't it also nice um you know if you you do that for them then the next time they need another kind of significant piece of work or or chunky piece of work, you'll be one of the first kind of people they'll recommend because I think there is something kind of honest in delivering a full value 
to a client, you know, not trying to tag them along or, or make them kind of reliant on you. Unless that's something that they, they deliberately say. We have a few clients who say to us, like, we want you to do everything for us because yeah. we don't want to do it. Like, you know, so that's what we perform for them. But I think there's also something lovely in the idea of being able to say, cool, like, if you don't want us to stick around, we can build you something that might cost you a little bit more upfront. But sure. in the long term, you can use it, you know, long after we've we've left you and it becomes your your tool to to kind of create with well it's i mean like it's like any brand system it's there's constraints that make things look better and there's rules that help improve things but at the end of the day we don't want to be gatekeepers of design and we think everyone can be a designer in some way and you should be you should have the keys to that brand identity that you invested so much time and money towards and keep and and we also probably don't want to be on the line for making brochures and uh social assets and a lot of those different things are not really uh within our wheelhouse they're within our wheelhouse of capabilities but probably not the meaty projects that we're as interested in digging into anyways yes and now we don't exist so it's for the best because now they're not uh, caught holding the bag there. Yes. So your work lives on, work lives on without you. So, so I mean, we have uh, exactly 18 seconds left of this podcast. So I'd be interested to know what your kind of take on the, the next couple of months will be and, and how you want to um, spend your time and, mm. and what are you looking for next? What am I looking for next? Um, I've been thinking about that, as you can imagine. I don't know that I have a very solid, interesting answer, but um, I'd like to continue a lot of the work, uh, honestly, that I've been doing since I worked at Creative Mornings, where I met you, which is uh, supporting and facilitating creative communities in various capacities. I think with the studio, the projects that made me the most excited are the things, like I said, like A to Z and the public docs and we would host uh, designers and creative individuals at our studio on the first Friday of every month. And they could ask us any question as part of HRF Live and uh, continuing a lot of that stuff um, and creating spaces where people can make their best work is probably what I'm looking to do next, as well as uh, I'm trying to learn how to cook and I want to figure out how to bake a tartine. Uh, I tried to do it and I flipped it over and it went all over my counter. So I feel like there's some more work to do on that before I can. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. Who knows, Ross? Well, well, Carly, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and uh, I wish nothing but the firmest tartines in your yeah, your future. I um, so. Maybe when you open up the tartine shop <laughs> um, in New York, I'll come and come and visit. <laughs> um, and I look forward to watching how how your next next kind of iteration of yourself is uh, an extension of the work you've done at Horaf. So thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'll talk to you soon. It's a pleasure. And we'll catch you in the next one. Yeah. Thank you for listening. We believe sharing knowledge is an obligation. So if you know someone who would benefit from useful insights to stay relevant in the world of creativity, brand innovation, technology, and interacting in this new world, please share this podcast with them. 
On top of that, we welcome feedback, good or bad. So if you've got some, please reach out to us. One more question is brought to you by the people at NiceWork, a branding and service design company in Johannesburg, South Africa. If you would like to chat about the challenges you're facing, reach out to at www.nicework.co.za. We release an episode every week, so please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're really old school, hit us up and we'll make you a mixtape.